I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1925, and we'll be talking about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. I have two guests for this conversation. Andrea Pitzer is the author of several books, most recently Icebound, Shipwreck to the Edge of the World. And I'm also happy to have uh, Matthew Hunt back. He was on our Cheneysville Incident episode. Um, his work can be found in the Paris Review Daily, The Observer, and other places. Um, but then I have to warn you, listeners, that there are a few places where Matthew's sound cuts out uh, of the recording because of some internet issues he was having. Um, so I wasn't entirely able to edit around these without losing the points that he was making. So I hope it isn't too difficult to listen to. But I think it's worth it to keep the sentences he was saying, even if they're not completely clear. Um, I don't know. Good luck. You can write me a letter to say if, if I was not successful. <laughs> um, then a summary of the book. Mrs. Dalloway. Um, it's pretty famously about a middle-aged woman who is putting on a party. She's the wife of a conservative politician. Um, they have a daughter called Elizabeth, who's like a young adult. Um, and then during the party, Clarissa Dalloway thinks about her old friends Peter and Sally. Um, she was in love with each of them during the summer that she decided to marry her husband when they were all young. And then they're also guests. Peter and Sally are guests at the party as well. Um, and then there are interleaved chapters that follow a soldier called Septimus Smith, who was traumatized by the war, um, World War I. Uh, his wife, Rezia, tries to get him psychiatric treatment, but at the end of the day, he dies by suicide. And Clarissa has a somewhat mysterious burst of joy as she understands that the stranger has died. Um, we'll discuss it. So, on to our conversation. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're finally doing this book. I feel like we've been planning it for so long. I don't even remember whose idea it was originally. So Andrea, I am going to ask you the first question. And that is, we were just talking before I hit record about uh, suffering. And uh, and you said that it, um, that it reminds you of Mrs. Dalloway, how everyone has something going on and that there's a whole spectrum of suffering uh, in this book. Um, do you want to... Ex just expand on that point or say more? Sure. I think that what's interesting, one of the things that was interesting to me, I've read it probably four times altogether, I think, and across maybe 30 or 35 years. So it's, uh, I've had very different reactions to this book each time. And the thing that really struck me, one of the things that really struck me reading it again now is, is the degree to which no one in this novel is at ease. I mean, and it's it ranges from mild social discomfort to severe social discomfort to uh, feeling one has wasted one's life to um, lost love, unre well, not really unrequited, but unfulfilled love, and all the way to suicide, you know, to thoughts of suicide and suicide. And so one of the things that um, this novel just clocked in for me is is the degree to which she's sort of trying to register everybody's suffering and like make space for everybody's suffering. Yeah. 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 I um I think when I first read it a long time ago now, I think I saw it as more like Clarissa is happy and Septimus is suffering. Like I, I saw it as like um you know he went to war and is sad now. She didn't have to go to war and she kind of gets to be happy. Like that she has, that she's sort of protected from suffering by his sacrifice kind of. 
but I really didn't read it that way nearly as much this time. Well, I think that one of the things that comes across for me, and I'd be really interested to hear what what Matt wants to say about it as well, but that, um, and there are a lot of things I, I really love about this book. And at the same time, reading it this time, I felt very much like the way you can avoid suffering is through a kind of complicity um, with the things that uh, cause that suffering. And that that Clarissa manages not to be exactly in Septimus's shoes because she makes herself complicit with sort of the world around her and she finds her path that way. I read in a, um, I think it was the original introduction of the book one time that, that Wolf had written that at one point, initially, Clarissa was going to kill herself at the party, at the end of the party, that she, her death was going to be at the end of the book. And then later that Septimus and Clarissa were meant to be doubles, that they were meant to be doubles in a, like a profound way, not necessarily an oppositional way. And I think that that really came across to me much more in reading it this time. What did you think, Matthew? Um, right. I. It was so interesting. We, right. Um, Andrea's correct. Um, I, I can't remember who, where, where I read it, but apparently, yes, Clarissa was, and this the intended, I think this was back when the working table was the hours. She was intended to, to have died. And it was it was so funny that what happened to me when I was reading it this time, the scene of of Septimus' death, I actually missed it. Like it's only after I I, I read through it, then I went, oh wait, he just killed himself. Because what ended up sticking with me was the image from later in the book when Clarissa is talking about it, the line where she's talking about um about um, flashing, flashing up, and, and you know, and, and he's falling on the rails. So you know, I ended up mixing up. I said, no, no, that's not actually when he died. He's already, he's already been dead, and yeah, that. I, I swear, I guess we're, we're spoiling the book, but I guess people should have read it already. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm up at yeah th this part. I'm up at flash the ground through him, thundering, bruising when the when the rusty spikes. That was actually Clarissa, but I know for some reason in my mind I was, I, in my memory I was thinking of that was actually when he died. When no, she's actually putting herself in this position, and that that was actually a, a situation of of radical empathy. Which, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, the whole discourse on our empathy and sympathy the same, because clearly she's extremely empathetic, literally in the sense of putting herself in other people's positions. But at the same time, you know, it, she comes across as, as being as being so initially when you when you look at it, she comes across as being so so cold and and indifferent, even though no actually she is the most empathetic person there in terms of actually being able to put herself into other people's positions psychically. So you know it's that, that that's a sort of a, a, a difficult thing to the juxtapose for me. 
Yeah, I think that that um, the way that she's able to put herself in other people's positions and yet also sort of protect, protect some joyfulness and pleasure. Um, it seems like it's it's close to the heart of the book or one of the hearts of the book that um, I think that um, in one of the emails, uh, Matthew, you said that you wanted to talk about the aestheticism. And um, I think that 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 sense of being able to take joy in beautiful things and um, that that's almost like the most important thing in the book is to, and it's something that both Clarissa and Septimus have, right? That they're able to uh, enjoy things where each of them has a, a romantic foil, like Clarissa has Peter and um, Septimus has Rezia and um, each of them is kind of so wrapped up in their sorrows that they don't really still have any, does that, does that sound right to you? What do you, (laughs) it it was something that struck me. I'll jump, I'll jump in with one thing, which is just, there's this, this line that I wanted to get to, and this goes right to it. In that scene where she, where Clarissa has learned about Septimus and then is imagining this and, and having that empathy for him, it ends with, he made her feel the beauty, made her feel the fun. So it isn't just a joy in the things that she can find as beautiful. There's actually a joy in the death um, and, and maybe in being alive in opposition to his death or that someone else could see things as clearly as she did. There's that line where she sliced like a knife through everything. So she has this really astute ability to see things. And I think something about Septimus acting on that when she doesn't act, you know, that's what she's reacting to. So there's really some really complicated and interesting dynamic there. I agree. Yeah. I I think um, there's something about the fact that the party is full of people that she doesn't necessarily like all that much. Um, There's something about the party itself that um, transcends its guests. Um, And I think that that is also kind of an analog for her overall feeling about life where it's like, you could have a life in which nothing good is happening in which only suffering is happening in fact. And if you're still able to enjoy it, that's something real. Or like enjoy, it's like, I don't know if the words quite match what I mean, you know, Um, there was, I found Septimus's sections to be more joyful than I remembered them being like just more engaged. Well, I remember there was one passage and I was just thinking that she finds this world, like she finds this world so beautiful, but really alienating and almost too painful to endure the beauty of it being too painful to endure. And, and there's this distance between everyone that everyone is trying to overcome. It seems at every moment um, and is kind of unable to, but it's as if everybody's out at sea and the only way they can connect to each other is sort of by frantically swimming. These social interactions, right, are strained and and they're always not saying the thing that they want to say. And, and everyone is maintaining this really Baroque social system um, and trying to get through it. And, and but they're all kind of drowning. And so, you know, that it's this balance of the joy and the uh, horror of it. Um, but 
Matthew was talking earlier before we started recording about this idea of the nihilism of it. And I think what I'm thinking about that kind of ties into what he was thinking. So I'd love to hear where you are with that now, Hunt. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us more. Well, I mean, what the thing the thing with the nihilism and the immoralism, um, I mean, I guess you, you you can't separate them from the aestheticism. Um why well, I, I think I mean is widely known that that her Tudor Clara, I hope I'm pronouncing cor- correctly, Clara Peter was the sister of Walter Peter, you know, the the art for art to, you know. Yeah. I don't know if he coined the term, but yeah, art for art for art's sake and and whatnot, gem like flames and all that sort of stuff. So so clearly that's that's there. And really so I've been thinking about about the the connection with the with the nihilism was the part with Septimus. This is when he comes back from the war. And he is rereading the classics. So he's going through, you know, going through Shakespeare and going through Dante. And he was was realizing um again how I, I suppose that 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 he had there's almost this feeling when you're coming from I guess you can't separate from his class position, you know working class autodidact that, you know, the, the classics are, are somehow um, ennobling and civilizing and all this stuff. So now he comes back from the war and he realizes actually, no, it's, it's none of that. So perhaps had he, had he realized this from before, he would have gone off to war to, you know, to save, you know, for the sake of, of Shakespeare and Miss Isabel Pohl. In a sense, what I, I'm seeing Clarissa's partying or her party making or party organizing as as her own form of, of artistic expression, which is limited to by by the combination of her class and her and her lack of, of, of formal education. So in a sense, so this is the same same sort of the the same sort of the same relationship that 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 Septimus would have to to the great literature. She would have to, I guess, everyday life, to the organizing yeah. of the parties and the and the gardening and whatnot. So in a sense, so she realizes something that. He doesn't update until too late. So this is one of the reasons why she's able to connect to him. Um, also, the nihilism, nihilism, nihilism. We know which one is. Yeah, tomato, tomato. Um, I'm trying to connect this <laughs> to, to, because I was always thinking about this in terms of Clarissa as being essentially a, you know, and this is probably going to open open things up, or maybe it won't open things up, about her being this essentially this sort of conservative figure who has been created by an ostensibly, 
okay, to what extent was, was Virginia Woolf left? So that, that's all of the issue. But thinking of, of the sense that you are truly materialist, there still has to be some sort of structure, organization. But then where does that come from? Well, then essentially what you have is tradition. Yeah. So yeah. when you when you see that, that would explain, in a sense, you know, this this connection to to structure and whatnot, and and to the hierarchy and to a certain extent, uh, uh, her snobbishness. While on the other hand, actually, again, he doesn't understand this until too late. And then he actually um, takes some of these ideas seriously. Then, so you know, it's almost like he has this this um, Platonic belief in this ennobling truth and whatnot. And one, this by virtue of of the the war and his PTSD, when this is taken out from under him, that's when the breakdown occurs. Whereas. Yeah. Clarissa still has this, she has a better coping mechanism to deal with the, the nihilism which she, which she accepts. Right, the, the decorating the dungeon, right? That famous phrase. I mean, this is what she finds the meaning in, but it's, it's really interesting because everybody in the book in one way or another, except Clarissa and uh, Ms. Kilman and um, Septimus, you know. Um, Peter. Uh, well, but Peter yeah. even, well, he's, Critical of it, but he, um, but he goes to India, right? <laughs> I mean, he keeps up the charade of empire, right? This is what Peter is, though. You're right. I mean, this is why she connects to him so much. Why Clarissa is so connected to Peter is because they understand one another, and Clarissa can't handle that, right? It's too much. She can't marry that. That, that they get each other, they both see the sort of the hollowness of it, but he's going to live his life still doing it. And even she is going to live her life still doing it. And I'm thinking of the queen or the prime minister's carriage in that opening uh, part where everybody's trying to figure out who it is. Everything in London stops. Um, there's the war that Septimus is so tied to. There's the pandemic that Clarissa has the heart damage from. You know, there's monarchy, there's empire in India. All this is going on. And, and this is the way that people find to relate to each other, to talk over the health issues, to see the doctors, to watch for the carriage to go by. And that I think that empire um, gives them that structure you're talking about, the way the party does as well, right? It gives them this sort of fake thing over the abyss through which they move. But I love the line in there. It, it was very dangerous to live even one day. Yeah. And, and you do get the sense of that through all these social, very mundane social interactions. There's this horrible feeling of uh, jeopardy, at least to me reading it now, you know, through the entire book, not just the parts about Septimus or when things wax super dramatic, but it, it feels uh, so precarious from start to finish. Well, I think one of the mysteries in the book for me is what would have happened with the, you know, the, the memories of uh, Sally and Peter and this feeling that something would have been very different if she had made a different choice between Peter and Richard and in a sense, Sally. And in some ways it seems like 
that's the choice that that Virginia Woolf herself made, that she did go and be an artist and she did not become a social socialite of any kind. And she, you know, does not have parties or not the way Clarissa does. She's not a, a politician's wife. Um, that she kind of left that world as far as I can tell. Um, but I don't know if, I don't know what the book thinks would have happened if Clarissa had made the different choice there. And it seems like it almost would be. Well, I've seen some critics argue that that's exactly the, the whole, the whole, um, one of the inspirations for, um, to the lighthouse. Well, I mean, that's what, no, no, I've seen um, some critics have, have, have suggested that, 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 the scenario where, where Clarissa marries Peter, you know, that's sort of what plays out into the lighthouse. To a certain extent, yeah. Um, like, I think that the the absence of definition there, it has to do with the, the like, um, that it's dangerous to live even one day, that there's this very delicate structure that prevents us from just tumbling into the abyss that is below life. Um, and that we, you know, uh, step outside that structure kind of at our own peril, but at the same time, we just don't know what's on the other side of it necessarily other than suicide. And I think that that's a question that seems, um, very close to the heart of modernism like what is there if you don't become a conservative politician wife and as they're in and as they explicitly stated um interesting i don't know if this is true of sally but they did explicitly state that neither um they're both that both um, Clarissa and Peter, the, they're atheists. They don't believe in and they don't believe in an afterlife or 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 anything. Um, and again, this may also, in a sense, frame part of the reaction to somebody like like Kilman, who has both the the religious fervor and also very she has very specific um political beliefs you know she 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 has she has um strong political beliefs which is not clear that either that any other the other characters has you know because sometimes you know we we think about Kilman, you know miss Kilman, you know the the religion but then remember she also loses her job because of her position um on the war and Peter, and he, he's a socialist, but, you know, kind of not really. Let's go ahead, Andrea. Well, I was just going to say, I think I think Kilman is fascinating because, um, you know, she's sort of like Septimus, right? She on the class thing and all this. She's sort of this foreign body moving or, you know, coming to the edge uh, in Kilman's place, coming into the center of Clarissa's world and like unsettling it. And there's that moment in the novel 
where she acknowledges that she could imagine sort of being enraptured with Miss Kilman, like in another setting, right? That she could imagine it, but this was not that setting. You know, the choices she'd already made sort of constrained her. And it's clear that Clarissa doesn't want things to be moving against the system. Septimus out there, like ending his life, and she knows there's someone else that has her ability to see reality and how terrible it is, but that's not in her world. You know, ending his life, I think, makes her feel both understood but alive because she hasn't suffered that same fate. But I think somebody into her own home with her child, um, unsettling the stability of everything that she's chosen and built is too threatening and that she just can't in the end, you know, countenance that. And I think it's a class thing, as it is with Septimus, that Miss Kilman has um, got hold of a stick by the different end than Clarissa in terms of how she understands the world. I think Clarissa knows that in some cases, Miss Kilman probably knows more than she does. And that's threatening, too. Right. Um, so there's class, there's knowledge, there's the religious aspect. Um, you know, she's sort of the thing that could destabilize what what Clarissa cares about most. And so I think that uh, uh, Kilman is like maybe the most interesting character in it. But one of the things that I was saying before we spoke to uh, before we started recording was just this idea that one of the one of the ideas I had in the last one or two times that I've read the book has been much more that each of these characters is kind of a splinter of Wolf herself and reflecting some uh, piece of her. And so I think even Kilman is that more, as you were saying, uh, Catherine, that, that sort of that she didn't make all those same choices that were made in the novel. And she's sort of giving vent to a little bit of those through a person very different than herself. But some of that alternate fate, if you go off the path. Or if you stay on the path. Yeah. Um, because Clarissa stays kind of like Clarissa is, has a more conventional life than Wolf herself did. Like Wolf made a lot of very unconventional choices and some of them were kind of forced because of her, you know, various mental illness. But I was just thinking if, if Clarissa had gone off the path, then oh, yes, you know, yeah. as, as Wolf did in some ways, you know, Miss Kilman is part of what can result from that. You can be in a whole room full of Miss Kilman's which would be a lot for uh, for Mrs. Dalloway to handle, I think. And so that Wolf, I think, is sort of reflecting a lot of different pieces of her own identity. One thing I saw was that that line about the equator, where uh, Clarissa doesn't have any idea what the equator sort of actually is. And I had always thought that was like a sort of a snide thing that Wolf was doing by putting that in there. Um, to mock her a little bit. And then I remember reading in one of the diaries that Wolf herself had made a very similar error and that it had stopped conversation where she was at for 20 minutes. If you can oh, imagine, wow. yeah, if you can imagine the drawing room conversation faux pas that leads to a silence of 20 minutes. It must have been quite dramatic. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, apparently quite a bit of schooling about the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn after being educated about the equator. Um, I think it must have stuck with her in a way. And it was really interesting to me. It made me think that Mrs. Dalloway was maybe a little closer to her in her heart, which, again, biographically maybe doesn't matter. But it's always interesting to sort of get a sense of what is the novelist's view of where they sit, how close to or distant from their characters they are. And that made me think she was even more sympathetic, much more sympathetic and even empathetic to Mrs. Dalloway than I had sort of thought before. You know, Mrs. Dalloway is a character in The Voyage Out also. And 
but she's not a point of view character. She's a, a more minor character. And in that one, she sort of, um, I think that that feeling that she's, um, she's living this kind of charmed life in some ways. Uh, her husband kisses the main character and she just kind of like, it's like, it doesn't exist for her sort of um, that her husband is like kissing this girl while they're on the ship together. Um, but she's kind of, it, I think like the modern equivalent would be to call someone basic, you know, like that she's, it's a combination of like, well, she's very pretty and seems happy. And she seems to be like very charmed by her apple picking and pumpkin spice lattes or whatever, like, you know, the equivalent things from, from that time and place. And I, I think it's, it's interesting to think about what, changed for Wolf between when she was writing about Mrs. Dalloway first and when she was writing about her again, like 10 years later, after World War I had happened and after Wolf herself had suffered a lot of very serious illnesses and um, made a lot of unconventional life choices that had taken her farther away from this kind of... Um, the kind of life or parties that Mrs. Dalloway would throw, I guess. I think well, that it's somewhere she's kinder to her. Well, but even in Mrs. Dalloway, and this is sort of what I had picked up the first couple of times I read it that had stuck with me. She's, you know, Wolf having this omniscience is, is judgy <laughs> about yeah. Mrs. Dalloway, even as she does have a kind of transcendence of her own, right? She has ability to bridge these social distances but she likes Hugh Whitbread, which who everyone else in the novel loathes because he's obviously just this pompous stand-in for ritual and circumstance, right? And she actually really likes him on some level, even though she knows he's kind of ridiculous. She's in love with those ridiculous symbols of things, but it's only occasionally that she can kind of get past them or let herself go past them. I guess she sees that clearly, but she wants to keep these pieces of it. But I think maybe later... Wolf, you know, moves farther in that direction, the, the, the sort of, that she is more basic, um, you know, in those, in that future role. Well, I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, like, I guess Wolf is judging about everybody. I mean, remember the, when she talks about Septimus reading Eschelus and she puts in parentheses, translated, you know, so, you know. <laughs> 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 I guess so one like, of her gifts you know, is to be judgy. Yes, one of her gifts is to be judgy. Yeah. So, like, Peter, I. Strangely enough, I mean, other than, other than Elizabeth and. I guess in his own way, Richard sort of. But I guess everybody, everybody takes. Everybody takes their hits at some point. Well, and even Richard, because he's seen as not worthy of her by Sally and Peter both, that all he cares about is his dogs, right? I mean, he has a more sympathetic betrayal, but he even gets dinged a, a little. So that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that archness and judginess is such a foundational part of the tradition of English literature um, that it's almost hard to see it as something that belongs to Wolf herself as much as the whole sweep of England, you know, 
um, that. Uh, this is sort of like, um, I hope I'm not misquoting me. I haven't read it in years, but this is sort of like Hugh, Hugh Kenner's argument that um, that Wolf wasn't like really a modernist. He was like the last Edwardian or, or something, something along those lines. I was in, um, after we read it, was in um, A Sinking Island. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know the guts of that, of that argument. I did find this book to be much more um, structured like an Edwardian novel than, um, than full modernism. But also, you know, that's fair. It's like 1925, you know. Um, but the, the things about it that struck me as Edwardian is I think that there's this confidence that marrying a certain person ties you to an entire... Stra- a strand of life like that it, in some ways all your decisions unroll from one decision that you make when you're 20 um and um i think that the book in some ways did a cubist version of that by you know showing us later showing us this part showing us that part but it still was essentially for clarissa's plot line about how she married richard instead of Peter, but she was in love with Sally. The propulsive plot is like this romantic plot that has to do with making that decision. Um, And that felt kind of Edwardian to me. I felt I had this weird, just random thought, which I wasn't even going to bring up, uh, but I had it while I was reading it, that that now fits strangely enough, that this was almost like a response to, uh, like it's like a Jane Austen postscript, right? It's what happens after... The marriage, but it's this take on uh, where everything is still as determined, but what happens after, right? It, instead of the buildup to and how are all the daughters going to go or how is this one going to go, it's it's the consequences of that. And um, I do think that the modern side of it, I mean, it's definitely got the the Edwardian structure, and there's a lot of Edwardianness happening, um, and that judginess that we're talking about is certainly a part of English lit. But what I think she does here that makes the barbs both gentler and more biting are the way that she manages to pop into the consciousness. I mean, it's a stream of consciousness, not only of herself or of just like a couple key people, but we are like literally flitting through crowds, descending into the awareness and observations, the callow observations, the profound observations of the mass of people. And that I found really very modern and very striking, um, almost this Greek chorus uh, that she brings to bear in the novel, except that we're getting like an individual snippet of each of them that add up to this overall feeling. So I, it's really interesting. I think the, the novel sort of moves through different eras in, in interesting ways. That uh, work with the crowd is something that was happening in um, ballet also that um, having large crowds of people like um, choreography for a crowd instead of like, if you imagine, you know, um, the Nutcracker, like a lot of times it's just two people dancing and then there's like everyone else is in an arch around the outside sort of watching. Um, a ballet like Petrushka has like crowds of people who are sort of moving as one. I think of that idea of the crowd is in a lot of art forms um, that I know they had contact, you know, like obviously Bloomsbury had contact with the Ballet Russe and whatever. I just think it's interesting 
to to see those those leap across art forms. But I agree with you that that it subverts her judginess to have so many perspectives because it's not like everyone here is thinking that Mr. Darcy is an asshole. It's like everyone here is thinking a variety of things. And I, I do think that it, I think it's kinder than most like truly judgmental, you know, like English literature that really is getting its humor from this person thinks that they are successfully putting on airs, but we can all see through them that they're truly middle-class, you know, like that, that kind of thing, like she's not immune to it, but I think that she's a lot gentler about it than most English writers. I think she loves and loathes all of them kind of simultaneously, which is, which is difficult as a writer to do without sort of losing the focus of what you're doing, because sometimes I think writers, even really good ones feel like they have to direct the reader a certain way. And she's giving you as a reader, the liberty to sort of see these things and, you know, she'll condemn them and she'll give them great insights. And then it's sort of for you to see what does the mosaic add up to? Yeah. Yeah, I I guess that, but that, yeah, but that would, that would also, I also see that, you know, you know, really as a, as a byproduct of the, the same um, aestheticism where, you know, um, you know, before, like, if you look to somebody like, um, like George Eliot, like, you know, she's writing Middlemarch, like she clearly has a position and she's, and she is working to make, like, she's making a, a, a specific argument that was, you know, really, um, it was very, she's really proposing an explicit political position, you know, um, you know, Dickens, you know, if I, you can go back to um, to Dante. I mean, we don't remember. I, I guess maybe some some scholars actually remember what would, what was Dante's major political argument. But um, that is that is less is less obvious in in Wolf's position. In part because you know she's writing about people who are not exactly part of her her own milieu. So I think that. That's where it gets. Um, that's where it gets a lot of its its power from. In that she's not, she's not trying to. There is no explicit um, political or, or dare I say, philosophical argument which is being pursued. At least not explicitly in the way that many of these other great great novels in in the English tradition have that. That is a really interesting point. That's really interesting because I was thinking that um, I was reading the um, annotated Mrs. Dalloway that just came out, the Mervay Emery one that um, was saying that um, her earlier point in earlier drafts was more like these people's lives are completely destroyed by world war one and then these people's lives are just going along exactly unchanged and i think that the deeper she got into it it was more like neither life is unchanged but neither life is destroyed either um like i think that she kind of talked herself out of a more simplistic position as she got deeper into the book, does that does that seem right to you? Like when I'm when I'm saying that, like 
Um, I'm kind of trying it out as a point. I'm not totally committed to it myself either, but um, I think that the idea that um, some people benefit from war and some people are obviously destroyed by it. Um, I think that that, I think it's a point that probably seemed possibly trite by the time it was 19. 24 when she's writing this um and i think that maybe it was becoming increasingly obvious that everyone's lives were completely changed and that there were does that seem true about this book to you i i mean i wouldn't doubt that that wolf in fact believed that but you know again the the demands of art are are pretty different you know as i said you know all like all these great novels you know have they had you know quite explicit agendas but at the end of the day that's not necessarily what makes them that's not necessarily what makes them great you know so yeah, I wouldn't doubt that, you know, Virginia Woolf herself probably had certain positions on the on the war and how it affected different people. But, you know, when, you, when you're going and you're creating art, well, it's always going to be more complicated because, again, you're talking about, um, you know, Clarissa as, you know, using our contemporary vernacular as being basic. You know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe 50 years ago, we'd have called her petit bourgeois. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a perfect Marxist. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, so you would have, so if you, you're creating art, it'll be easier to have, have somebody like a Clarissa as a sort of flat, as, as basically as a caricature. But then when you actually have to go and write about this, you know, this, you're making this rounded character, you're making this, writing about this actual human being, then you realize, oh, it's actually, these things are, are a lot more, more complicated and these things may override whatever, whatever beliefs that, that you may have. So you may, you know, you could start one place and you may end up um, creating something completely different because ultimately like the art. Again, if again, if you are an an esthete, you know the the art it, it, it exists within this its own autonomous realm, which is which you know which carries on regardless of your own political beliefs. Because it's not to say that I mean, as as you said, ad nauseum, I, I don't think it's clear that Virginia Woolf herself had certain beliefs and she lived her life a certain type of way. But that would not prevent her, again, to use the, the whole scenario from within the book itself, from between Clarissa and, and Septimus. It would not prevent her from having this, this great empathy for somebody who is not like her. So now once you start doing that, you know, you have no idea where you could end up. And, you know, I think that's where the complications the complications come through. So how, how does anybody feel about anybody? Well, nobody has, if you have any meaningful relationships, 
they're not going to be necessarily straightforward. How does how does Clarissa at the end of the day really feel about Peter? You know, it's complicated because any deep relationship is complicated. How does she feel about Richard? It's complicated. So, you know, once you once you start getting into creating art, you know, you go out to sea and you, you never know where you're going to land. Yeah, I think that this book is a really good example of that. A really good example of something that is that must have gotten more complex than than she realized when she set out to write it. Well, I think she's actually putting those characters in with each other too. So maybe they start out somewhat simple, but we see them react so much to one another. And she has to develop those. They can't all have the same reaction. You know, like you said, it's not going to be everybody thinks Mr. Darcy's an asshole, right? Like we're past that era in literature. So the aesthetics require her to sort of plumb what does Peter really think of Clarissa and what, you know, what are everybody's reactions to these main characters that we have? And so she has to develop different ones than her starting ones to make it, you know, stand with each individual character. And then suddenly you're looking at people in the round in messy ways and you're talking about what do they think? I think one of the things that has come up again and again in the language of the book is feeling, right? That Septimus says he could not, when she's writing about Septimus, she's saying he could not feel. And then Sally Seton at one point says that was the only thing worth saying, what one felt. And then right after that, Peter Walsh says, I do not know what I feel. And, and this question of, of, um, of even them knowing like what their feelings are for these people or how they feel about the world. Uh, it introduces all kinds of interesting aesthetic questions if they don't actually know the answer. Right. And it's by leaving some of that open-ended that I think a lot of the richness sort of just starts to come out on its own. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's also why the book is not making any clear political, it doesn't have a clear political position. Because it's saying, I mean, in some ways, it agrees with Clarissa that the fragile and sort of meaningless rituals and texture, the structure that that prevents you from killing yourself all the time um, is valuable, even if it is made out of stupid garbage that, you know, like even if, even if society um, is a party full of people that you don't much like, it still sort of has value for its own sake. Um, even if all of the things you're doing are kind of meaningless uh, and you aren't really in love with your husband and you don't really care about your kid, like all of those things that still being a wife and a mother is like meaningful in itself. But then if you think about actually spending time with that person, you're like, oh, if I was actually hanging out with somebody who was that interested in flowers and their party and their clothes. I don't know. I think I probably would think that they had maybe thrown their life away. You know, the the thing that Peter thinks about her, that she kind of threw herself away and that she had more potential. I don't know. Well, there's a real question in the book that I'm not sure that, and again, it doesn't matter. It's in the book, whether Wolf has like placed it firmly there or not. Um, it's there is this idea of, um, you know, it very much feels in contrast to say Ulysses, it very much feels like an end of empire book, right? Everything is 
in despair. Everything is in decline. Everyone is destroyed by the pandemic or the war or, you know, being abroad in these places. And it has affected everyone's lives. And yet no one seems to be asking questions about that except Miss Kilman. And so Miss yeah. Kilman becomes a really interesting factor in the book of um, this, you know, it's not end of century fatigue because we're well into the 20th century here, but end of empire fatigue, I guess I would say, that kind of goes un, uh, unaddressed by a lot of the people in the book, but sits really firmly there. And it makes you question is, is it, is the party worth it? You know, the question you were just asking now, is it really worth it if all you get to do with your whole life is marry the wrong guy and have to throw parties and, and look for these tiny, tiny things? You know, it, it's a real question that gets asked, but that has political ramifications as well as like the whole suicide side as well. And a lot of that, I think she just doesn't go there, maybe because she wants to steer clear of that and keep it to this personal level, or maybe because she didn't, um, she didn't have answers to those questions to explore. I don't know. Well, I actually wonder if another element of that feeling of meaninglessness in Clarissa's life has to do with um gay stuff like I wonder if that feeling that Peter thinks that Clarissa should have married Peter but Clarissa really was attracted to Sally I mean the book like she finished Wolf finished writing it just as she was falling in love with Vita Sackville West right and there is kind of that feeling in how she writes about deciding to marry Leonard Wolf that she is not attracted to him at all. And um, like, uh, you know, they agree to marry without her being attracted to him. And I wonder if one of the things she's feeling in writing this is like any marriage to a man has this kind of, well, you're doing it because everyone tells you that's what you're supposed to do. And, but it would have the emptiness inside it that, um, would seem would it's like that the relationship with a man would feel pale compared to the passion for the girl when she was young, right? I feel like there's, there's some like gayness that's around every single corner in this book, like the way well, that she. It was Septimus too, right? Septimus who can't stop. Th- he's not thinking about his wife, you know. Exactly. He's thinking yeah. about yeah, and so I think, and he is entirely cut off from that. And she still has Sally. Clarissa still has Sally to a lesser degree, but she still exists, right? But Septimus has lost that entirely. And so I could see that. Yeah, I mean, certainly that issue is underlying the whole thing. And I think a part of the despair of the book is centered in that those kinds of unions can't be uh, kept or consummated in a meaningful way, like for ongoing existence. Yes, there is that. But then... I'm also thinking it's also complicated by the reasons in which she did not go with Peter. So it's almost as if, you, you know, again, it goes back to like, what does she, what, how does she feel about Peter? And the reason like she doesn't want to, to, to be with Peter is as if it would almost be like too intimate. So even that complicates it. And then also, Peter is not exactly, you know, you know, the prototypical masculine <laughs> figure, certainly not, not of that era. And they, they say so explicitly. 
So, yeah. yeah, so then everything's ambiguous. And then for some reason, this part, like right at the end of the book, and I just keep, I'm wondering if, if I was misreading it, it goes here. Um, this is Peter talking to Sally. This is when, when Clarissa has gone off. This is after she finds out Septimus has died. Um, he, had not found, he had not found life simple, Peter said. His relations with Clarissa had not been simple. It has spoiled his life, he said. Then they put in parentheses. They had been so intimate, he and, Sa- and Sally Seton. Seton. It was not absurd not to say it. And then he goes on and continues talking about his relationship with, with Clarissa. So now I'm wondering, okay, like what is the relationship between between Sally and Peter? Like, like everything just, just seems... Yeah, I think that if she so, had married yeah. Peter, she would have ended up in a Bloomsbury-style thruple, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that that's... I mean, I don't think we need to dig too deep. So basically, into, she, so basically she would have lived the life of her sister. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 or, or Virginia Woolf herself. Like, obviously, there was a lot of sleeping around going on. Um, yeah. And, yeah, but Vanessa, Vanessa was... <laughs> yeah. She was... Uh, yeah, she was out there to a much greater extent. Much greater extent, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that that's not like I don't. I don't think we need to suppose too much to assume that part of what she would be signing up for if she had married Peter is a lot more sexual freedom to be with women, and just that um, that their marriage would be more open. I guess that does seem reasonable reading of the text. That seems like one of the freedoms that they would have allowed themselves in their like free thinking. I think it certainly would have, she would have been off the rails of, you know, what she chose, but of course, Sally made her own choices, right? So she had five boys and in the book she says, and we seem to be inside her head that she's very happy at one point as well with her five boys. And so what, would Sally have jumped the rails too? You know, we don't know. I mean, it's nice that everything is ambiguous. What would Peter have really tolerated? What would, but it's clear if she had gone that direction, it would have been a very different life, you know, with a lot of broader range potentially of lifestyle possibilities, let us say. But but remember that, that Sally also, she is in a sense, she's also doing something somewhat taboo because Sally herself also marries I guess, out of her class as well. And she's with a, a minus son and she lives in the north of England. Yeah. I think that one of the, the things about it being from 1925 is uh, that modernism is associated with youth, um, that the openness of choice that comes from being young is associated with the openness of choice that comes from a lack of social structures of like modernity um, because they just haven't had that many years of modernity yet. You know, they don't know what modernity looks like when you're 45 or 65 or 85. And it's, it's interesting how I think this book somewhat conflates the freedom of youth with um, kind of existential freedom and there isn't yet a feeling of like, um, I don't want to say there's no feeling of dread in this book, but I think that there, 
as the 20th century continues, I think that um, the fear of freedom becomes a more prominent theme. Like that there is no path that's equivalent to marrying the conservative politician and having parties. There's only the freedom of having to kind of uh, determine your identity through action at all times. I guess that's a little what I was getting to with this feeling like an end of empire book. They all feel very straightjacketed into this social setting, but they know they're straightjacketed, unlike a novel that might have been written 30 or 40 years before, right? They can see at least a novel, not everybody, but they feel the straitjacket. They chafe at the straitjacket. They understand there's a different world out there. Um, and, and there's that romance of the idea of it. Yeah, I don't think there's I mean, Septimus has a little bit the horror of it, right? Because he gets the literature. He can see clearly a world that he couldn't see before, but it drives him mad. I mean, seeing yeah. the reality yeah. of what's out there, if you leave this behind, is too much. So I think we get the beginning of that horror, but it's it's mostly corralled into Septimus with Clarissa sort of being the sort of hidden soulmate to it. But she's embraced the structure that's going to keep her above the abyss. And so, yeah, I do think that the, the overall modern horror novel this yeah. isn't that it's not that yet i really like that point i think that's a really good point and i think that if the the novel that we compared it to is middlemarch like uh, matthew like you were saying before um i think that that sense that like um that we're so straightjacketed into these roles but the trains could bring some freedom maybe maybe the trains could bring second chances in some ways and we don't have to just keep living the decision we all made when we were 20 um but maybe not maybe that freedom doesn't actually take us far enough you know like in in middle march the characters have opportunities to make second choices but it's kind of like well, Dorothea still ends up just being a wife and mother. Like there isn't, there isn't a more radical freedom than just choosing a slightly better husband for her. But um, I think that the thing you said, Andrea, about Clarissa and Septimus being kind of soulmates with that big distance. Um, it's like if it if it's kind of like a romance or a love story between the two of them, but the consummation is just recognition or empathy, and there's no like there's no good marriage that could be made. Well, she believes in the end. I mean, she de derives some beauty and joy from his death, and I think it's a little bit he's a martyr that reinforces the choices that she's made. The decorating the dungeon is, you know, the way as difficult as it is that it's this is her only hope. This is her duty. I don't think it's inevitable that that's the case to frame the novel that way. But I think that's one real reading that you could make. Like, why does it bring her joy aesthetically in the novel? I understand why Wolf as the author and as us as readers, it would provide some kind of uh, deliverance. Like, well, that's not us or we've transcended that or something. But why does it do that for Clarissa is is a question I think you have to wrestle with in the novel. And that soulmateness, it can go a couple different ways. She can get a vicarious thrill out of imagining that she had killed herself in that. Um, you know, there are, there are different ways to answer that question, but I think it's a key question of the book. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I, I also I also wanted to wanted to point out that um, 
this book, um, and I guess this would be an ongoing, I guess would be a, a precursor of many books um, to come later in, in the century, was very skeptical about psychology. And yeah, so, you know, one of the, if you look at, at the way that, you know, that Bradshaw, is, you know, is portrayed, it's almost, I'm um, trying to find the line, almost described as this sort of evil, evil, evil figure. And um, yeah, so she's very, that one I think is, is def- what sounds more like, like, like Wolf intervening Howard. There's this very, this real skeptic- skepticism about, um, about the, the benefits of, of psychology. I, I, I guess I haven't read enough, for, you know, relationship between Wolf and, and Freud and whatnot, but that, that really stuck out to me. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I agree that the characterization in general in this book is very anti-Freudian. Like if, if you think of um, Freudian characterization in fiction of kind of like if um, an event happens that turns into a trait that the character has later, um, that's like obviously one Freudian thing. And then another Freudian thing is having people lack self-awareness that they are not really the, um, the authorities on themselves, that other people tell them who they are and why they're like that. Um, neither of those things is true of this book. Like the, the actual texture of consciousness is sort of the locus of the self. Yeah, I think it's really, that's fascinating because I think it's really, um, it's a modern novel, although we've talked about all the ways it's not, it is a modern novel and it is sort of actively rejecting a big modern movement uh, that it's in the midst of. And also a lot of those class structures, Miss Kilman is not as delicately drawn. I mean, there are definitely like some more delicate parts, but overall she's one of the least delicately drawn people in the book. And so we have both class and this sort of psychodrama uh, things, which become so critical, let's say post-1917, post the Bolshevik revolution that she's writing in the wake of, right? Um, these are the dominant things sweeping Europe that are thought about in Europe. And and this novel is sort of saying they're there, putting a character in for each one that is, you know, really problematic in the structure of the book and is not the the out of all she seems to love them all a tiny bit at least but she loves those two less than she loves the others and and one of them she can imagine loving more but that's not this novel so it's really interesting that she's both included it and then not like made it fundamental to the book in in important ways this other idea that she's chasing is much more central and much more developed this existential uh absolutely without the benefit of a system you know yeah, because Marxism and Freudianism are both systems. Right. And people did take those, you know, that they have used those to um, uh, make up for the absence of other systems. You know, obviously, that's a huge, huge part of the 20th century is people doing that. Um, and yeah, I guess that, 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 that would go to, in fact, let me just 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 read a line. Yeah. On there. Um, this is right after again, right after Septimus dies. Um, suppose he had, he had had that passion and had gone to Sir William Bradshaw 
a great doctor, yet to her, obscurely evil, without sex or lust, extremely polite to women, but capable of some indescribable outrage, forcing your soul. That was it. If this young man had gone to him and Sir William had impressed him like that with his power, might he not then have said, indeed, she felt it now, life is made intolerable. They make life intolerable, men like that. So, again, it seems that, that she's against Again, that, that's, that's still reductionist. But she's very skeptical, skeptical of, of, all, of all systems. And again, which, okay, which would tie into, you know, what you were saying from the beginning, nihilism and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, um, they're sort of, they're sort of amoral, sort of, you know, against, against psychology or, or psychiatry. So, you know, there's this, this, this skepticism of like everything is, is impinging to control us and then the way that we think and the way that we operate within, within the world. Um, Again, even talking about the relationships, maybe a affair of 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 romance, you know, getting too close to really giving yourself up to anyone fully. So she's not, you know, doesn't really. She ends up with Richard because she doesn't really have to give up herself to Richard. Doesn't want to end up with Peter because she felt that they they may be actually too close. Um, Sally, you know. Who, who knows who knows there um even perhaps given her personality even had she been able to act on the attraction to Sally maybe she would have still felt a, a sort of constraint there so it's as if she's against like all all systems yeah well and maybe I mean I was thinking like the the being polite to women but then being like mysteriously awful that is probably pretty accurate about psychology of the time. Um, you know, they were pretty awful to women in particular. Um, and it could well be that um, the distrust of systems is entirely earned. You know, like after all, World War I is the result of, um, you know, systems that got out of control of like any individual human agency. Right, but she is, I would say, less like uh, violently critical. Just reading, listening to that passage that that uh, Matthew just read, um, she is less that way with her own social system. Which again, we have the war, we have all those things, and yet this is what people cling to. And she even finds uh, Mrs. Dalloway clearly in the novel regularly finds several of these traditions of these events of these things that are mentioned, not just her party, but other ones, there's something sort of wonderful and reassuring about them. Whereas the doctor doesn't get that benefit of a doubt. And Miss Kilman does an interesting, not just from Clarissa, but from anybody in the book, we don't see that kind of sympathy for those other views. So that was where I was sort of saying that, that, you know, I think it really is bound up in her class, not just because that character is there aesthetically and representing it, but I think the author is putting a little thumb on the scale. There's definitely nostalgia of some kind or admiration of some kind that she allows. I don't know to what degree Wolf felt it, but she's allowing it to set the tone of the novel 
Um, she's less critical of that, even though it's had these horrific consequences, than she is in this brief period where they're allowed to emerge than these class ideas or psychiatry. Um, she's much quicker to denounce the latter two. I, I agree with you. And I think that um, probably as she gets older, actually, uh, I think it's probably less true of her of her earlier work, but the idea of like uh, moms making things beautiful, it's like, I think she's pretty uncynical about moms that make things beautiful, like Mrs. Ramsey and uh, To the Lighthouse. It's like, I don't think that she's secretly intending for us to judge a mom with flowers and tea or something. You know, that's like a really good thing in the Virginia Woolf cinematic universe. Yeah. And there's the one moment into the lighthouse where um, it was it Jasper and Prue, I think were the, the kids um, where they're throwing a ball and the bachelor and Lily, the painter are there and Mr. And Mrs. Ramsey. So you have these three pairs of male and female all interlocked right and the two kids are because they're throwing this ball and it's it's almost like I remember that scene so well because it's almost like it's the girl's job it's the women's job in that setting to keep the game going it's her daughter who keeps the game going and it's the son who makes this spectacular catch and I think that's so that's true of the part Mrs. Dalloway's party that's true of everything this idea that the mom's do the nice things, right? That you create this structure, you sustain this structure and men do these exciting and amazing things within it. And that this is the system that it's predicated on. And she's never fully critical of that in the works I've read of hers. I've read most of it. I haven't read everything she's ever written as a novelist, but um, it's a fascinating thing to me. But the tone of it is a little different than um, maybe because the kids are younger, um, maybe because Lily... And uh, because the painter and the bachelor, there is some promise that they'll get together. It feels like more of a romantic idea of it than Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway feels more at a loss. You know, there's there's despair in both. Um, but um, it's interesting. You know, I, yeah, I don't honestly know enough about the development of her career to make a, a strong statement about that, though. Yeah, I think it. I think it's fair to to just suggest it and say that we don't totally know enough to be to be sure about it. But I, I think that the the thing that she's doing that's unusual is to even pay attention to that mom character at all and say like that, um, you know, that she's she's the object of romantic love and desire. She's not just sort of there as a, you know, as a furnishing of this or uh, sort of asking someone to follow the rules or trying to marry the daughters off, whatever it is. Like, I don't know. Uh, Jane Austen is pretty rotten about mothers in general, but um, I think that putting the focus on the mother and thinking of what she's doing to maintain the structure, even if it's never very spectacular, but thinking of it as something that has moral meaning and that has like agency well, and that's fraught with despair. That's also fraught with despair. That does come across in all of her. Yes. No, yes. but that you do get at least a taste of that always from her. The yeah. taking on that identity, yeah, but, you know, not simple. Yeah. Yeah, but the the the, the despair comes. I mean, I, I okay, I, I shouldn't say that this is the root of the despair. Remember, she doesn't really believe in this. So she doesn't believe in anything. So when you don't believe in anything, what you have left is the tradition. 
Septimus, he actually believed for whatever it's worth in the tradition. That's why he was, that's why he volunteered to go off to war. Yeah. He actually believed. Clarissa, she accepts the tradition, but I guess like she sees through it. Yeah. She doesn't, I don't know, like she doesn't even, like unlike Mrs. Ramsey, like I, she doesn't even particularly like her kid. So yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that that's why she doesn't kill herself is because there's no illusion to become disillusioned by that she always knew that she was signing up for something kind of inherently empty. Well, and that um, phrase that, that Wolf gives her that she sliced like a knife through everything. I mean, she's we are meant to think that she can see everything clearly, like. And so she is constructing that illusion. So there's like, as you said, there's nothing to be disillusioned about. She knows she's constructed that illusion. And that's why I was going to say, I think this book is bleaker in that way than to the lighthouse in some ways. I think that there is some idea that there is a meaning to doing that later, at least a small meaning, even if there's the despair still present. But in this book, I don't think we leave with that. And that's why that question of her joy is yeah. at the end when she gets the news of his death is, is a really complicated question. What is she happy about? I I totally agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like that. I just think it's really interesting. It's a really good book, you know. It's a great book. Yeah, it really is. And um, I'm really happy that I just revisited it right now. Um, it was surprisingly good, you know, read for our times. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprising because I think a lot of the factors and why she wrote it are like very true right now with, you know, the pandemic and wars and various things like that. But um, closeted in new ways, social what? anxiety about terrorism. I mean, we've got it all. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just forms of unrest. And I, it's so humanly engaging. Like uh, Wolf is such a, like she has so much human presence in her writing. Um, it felt light and easy for a book, light and easy to engage with, you know, for a book that has so much despair and bleakness in it. Weirdly, there's a lot of tenderness in it. There's really a lot of tenderness. Yeah, a lot of tenderness and humor. It's funny. All right, that's our episode on Mrs. Dalloway. Thank you so much to Matthew and Andrea and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter, or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next month. <laughs>